Well, hey, I want to say thank you so much uh, for being here today. I just want to give you a quick update. Uh, You know, at the end of 2022, we had this big vision that we were casting about the kind of church that we wanted to be, how we wanted to build the future. And we challenged many of you uh, to give for the first time or to give generously above and beyond how you generally give. For some of you to recommit to your here-to-stay commitment and pledge. And I just want to say thank you. Uh, God has done incredible things in the life of our church. Just a couple uh, of kind of key points or uh, an important update for you. Some of you want to know, well, how did the end of the year uh, finish? Just a couple things to note. The first one is 2022 was the most generous financial year in the history of our church. In the midst of economic uncertainty, you showed up in an incredible way. We saw the numbers of people that gave here in our community increase by 35%. Uh, And because of the way that you gave through Build the Future, we have been able to really, I mean, it's been so generous and so significant. This whole community park that we want to complete, we're actually having to go back to the drawing board to rethink how we leverage the resources that you have invested because it was that generous at the end of the year. We were able to pay for our Nona Kids expansion, which allowed us to uh, reduce down to two services to create more space for kids. We'll see how long that lasts because y'all are showing up, but that's great. Uh, we'll, we'll deal with that problem. Uh, but the third thing is this, and this is the thing that I think I'm just most moved by. You showed up when we were talking about this heart to really create a mercy fund to make sure that licensed mental health counseling could be accessible uh, to uh, people that need it in our community. And I'm just encouraged and excited to tell you that you have fully funded a mercy fund. And in 2023, we can help 90 people get access to licensed mental health counseling here in our community. Is that not incredible? Amazing stuff. So I just want to say on behalf of Stacy, uh, our team, and, and the leadership here, we're deeply thankful for you, deeply thankful for the ways in which you care about this community, and you're creating environments where people can really know and take their next best step in following Jesus. Uh, today we're wrapping up um, our series, and I kind of say that. Uh, in one way. We're wrapping up our series in terms of the teaching piece that I've designed, uh, but we are going to have on February 5th uh, a follow-up conversation on this. So on February 5th, uh, the great Andrew Axum, who I absolutely love, uh, Andrew uh, is going to be joining the stage with me, and we've dedicated February 5th to Q&A, to pause Q&A. So in the midst of this series, maybe you've had some questions, or you've wanted to dig a little bit deeper, or you've wondered, okay, well, how does this work itself out Uh, in my life. We're dedicating an entire Sunday, February 5th, to your questions. And so uh, as you think back on your formation journal, as you think about the notes that you've been taking in this series, I want to encourage you to text the word pause. Say pause with me on the count of three. One, two, three. Pause. One more time. One, two, three. Pause. Text the word pause to the number 94,000, and that will give you uh, a place to drop your question. Uh, We'll make sure that those questions remain anonymous. No one's going to come hunt you down if you ask a particular question. But we'll take those questions, we'll curate them, and then on Sunday, February 5th, Andrew and I are going to sit down. He'll ask me those questions, and we'll work through the questions that you are asking. Because we're convinced of this here at Nona, that if you're going to come and spend time with us on Sunday morning, that the church ought to be the kind of place that is answering the questions that people are actually asking. Can I get a good amen in that regard? And so we want to create that environment and that space for you. So February 5th, be sure to be a part of that. So today I'm wrapping up the teaching part, and we'll see what February 5th is like, because that's up to you. Uh, But um, as we wrap up this series, just want to give you a quick review of what we've been talking about in the series pause. In week one, we said this, we can't follow Jesus if we're running out ahead of him. And because of that, it's important for us to identify the pace of Jesus and get an alignment with him. 
And week two, we really got practical. Well, how do we find that pace that Jesus has laid out for us? And we said this, that Jesus gives us the rhythm for our best life through daily habits and weekly rhythms. That the invitation is to meet with Jesus every day and allow him to speak to us. That we should treat that meeting like we would a meeting with our boss when it comes to our calendar. And that Jesus himself attended church and was engaged in community and that he took his rest seriously and every week he kept the Sabbath, a 24-hour window where he decided to stop working because God was in control and that when we live this way, although our life can feel complex and we look for complex solutions, it's really in the small choices we make every day and every week that over time create in us the kind of person that can live with longevity. Well, today I want to ask this question as we wrap up our series, because I think it's the question that I feel deeply in my heart uh, that perhaps you resonate with as well. And it's this, why do we keep on finding ourselves speeding up, wearing down, and burning out? Like, why is it that we know better? We know, like, okay, I don't want to get on this treadmill, uh, and I don't want to run too fast of a life, yet there's a moment in our time where we remember this, and then we find ourselves running faster than we said we would run. You guys ever been there before? It's like every year, babe, we're going to slow down. We're not going to do as much. Every year, talking with our roommates, hey, we're not going to do as much. Hey, help me slow down. And then as the weeks go by and as the months go by, our life looks exactly the same way it did in the year previous, right? The question that I've been asking is, why is it? Why is it that we keep, our, we keep on finding ourselves speeding up and wearing down and burning out? It's like, I know that I need to do it. And then we inevitably find ourselves running again too fast. And I think that today's message is a huge part of the reason why. I want to diagnose why that is the case in our life. And then I want to give us a way off of the crazy run that many of us find ourselves on. But it really does start with this reality that uh, it begins with what happens um, when I... Uh, when I don't um, have a plan and go to the gym. Yes, I'm on a treadmill again because I love you that much, all right? So here's what happens when I uh, don't have a plan and I'm going to the gym. Um, What ends up happening is I know that I'm supposed to have a time where I do some kind of cardio, right? So I inevitably find myself meandering around the different options and I get myself to a treadmill. Now, you need to know this about me. I absolutely hate running. Like some of you run for fun and I think that you need to meet Jesus. Like I don't understand why you do it. But whenever I get on a treadmill and I I kind of begin this process, I know that I need to work up a little bit of a sweat. But again, I don't have a plan. So here's what inevitably ends up happening. I look around at the other people that are on the treadmills and if I see that they're like at a, you know, a 4.2 or something like that, I just kind of bump it up a little bit and I kind of pick up my pace. And then I look around, and if they're at a four, and somebody else I notice is a little bit ahead of me is maybe at a five, then I bump that thing up to a five. You know why? Because I'm going to win this race. The reality is, is everybody else is running with their headphones on. They think that they know what they're doing. They're just relaxing, having a good time. But what they don't know is while they're relaxing and having a good time, I am competing against them. It is a silent competition, but I am going to win. So you might be at a four, they might be at a five, but then there's always that one guy in the gym who's like jacked out of his mind, you know, former NFL player, you know, got his big headphones on, grunting while he's working out, and that guy's got it higher. He's like at a seven, right? So I'm not going to be, oh, you're at a seven? Well, I'm at an eight, buster, and I start going, right? 
And what ends up happening is I get exhausted. You know why? Because I want to win. Now, now here's the deal. What do we call that? (laughs) Dysfunction. Now, what do we call that? Um, The word for that is comparison. See, comparison, comparison creates an internal pressure we feel to keep up, to stay ahead, or prove it to ourselves and to others. And listen, I am the first one that is for competition. I'm the, for the first one that if you're at the gym and you're working out and you, know, you do CrossFit and you saw that somebody posted a number and a score, you want to beat that, I think that that's great. I think if you go to spin class and you're doing your best to try to keep up like I am usually, like with some 70-year-old woman named Deborah who's just crushing me on the board, you know, like if you find yourself trying to compete in that small part of life for an hour, great. But the problem is when we take that kind of attitude, that kind of comparison-oriented spirit, not just into a workout at Orange Theory or some other place that we work out, but when we take that into every aspect of our lives. Because comparison inevitably creates this internal pressure inside of us to keep up, to stay ahead, and prove it to ourselves and to others. And I would submit to you, That part of the reason why you find yourself picking up pace over and over and over again is because you're looking at what other people are doing on their treadmills. That we live in a culture that drives us to comparison whether or not we even know that it's happening. So today, here's what I want to do. I want to answer three questions. Where does comparison come from? What does comparison do to us? And how do we break free from the comparison trap? So with that in mind, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray in the next few moments that you'll meet us in a powerful way, that we'll hear your voice. That God, maybe even today, there might be a diagnosis of why it is so hard for us to maintain the pace that you have called us to, which is not to run ahead of you, not to sprint out, not to chase somebody else, but to follow you step by step. So Lord, we love you and we thank you in the precious name of Jesus. Everybody in this place says, amen. Well, if you have your formation journals, turn to page 12. That's where you can take notes. If you're unfamiliar with what a formation journal is, uh, it's a gift that we give you that allows you to take notes on Sundays and has a full Bible reading plan for you during the course of the week. It really serves, if you will, as a workout map or guide for you during your week so that when you go to the scriptures and when you try to figure out how to spend time with God, you've got a plan. If you don't have one of those, feel free to grab have one at the new here uh, table out back at the end of our service in the lobby. We would love to be able to put one in your hands as a free gift. But on page 12 is where you can take notes today uh, for the message in your formation journal. So let's look at these three questions today. Where does comparison come from? What does comparison do to us? And how do we break free from the comparison trap? Let's look at the first question. Where does comparison come from? Here's what I would say. Comparison comes from our tendency to look around instead of look up to look around instead of look up. Uh, We all have what I would consider to be a vision problem. We have a tendency to look at the wrong things. And that is inherent to our human nature. Uh, Our first parents, Adam and Eve, the the beginnings of humanity, what we find in the stories that the reason why our first parents fall short while our first parents uh, fall short and end up leaving the garden in many ways is because of their inability to keep their eyes on the creator, but instead to fall in love with the created. 
And it shouldn't be a surprise to us that just eight verses after Adam and Eve, our first parents, leave the garden, we find this story in Genesis chapter 4. It says this, Then the Lord said to Cain, Cain was the son of Adam and Eve, Why are you angry, and why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? If you know the story, Cain and Abel both bring an offering to God. One offering is received, the other one is rejected. And out of frustration and anger, Cain kills his brother. It's a comparison game in chapter 4 of Genesis. Cain is comparing himself against Abel. God himself says to Cain, listen, Cain, don't worry about what your brother is doing. It's about me and you. It's about our relationship. It's about us working things out together. But instead of Cain being able to see it as a relationship between him and God, he has his eyes not on God, but on who? On his brother. And that leads to him murdering his brother. See, Cain had a worship problem. He thought that he was the center of the story. And when you think that life is about you, it inevitably turns into a comparison game and a competition. See, comparison will actually lead you to blame people for things that aren't their fault. You've probably been on the other side of this. You ever been blamed for something that's not your fault? Some of us run into this. Like, listen, your coworker isn't the reason why you didn't get the promotion. Your spouse isn't the reason why you can't go on that vacation. Your parents' kids aren't the reason why you can't process pain well. They might be a part of the story, but at some point we've got to recognize that it's not so much about what they're doing as much as it is how we're relating to God. But here's where he goes even deeper, is that comparison that we see happening in the story of Genesis also finds its way through the human nature. I would put this down in your notes too, that comparison is inherent to the human condition. Like all of us at some level struggle with comparison because it's our default. Uh, Theologians would call this our sin nature. It's this idea that the, the great songwriter has, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Our tendency is not to align ourselves to what God wants for us. Our tendency is to drift. That's inevitable. This is why James, Jesus' younger brother, writes this in James chapter 4. Look at his diagnosis of the reason why there's so much drama in the world today. Look at his diagnosis as to what the reason as to why we find ourselves in so much conflict. Look what he says. It says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires that are war within you? Listen to this. You want what you don't have... So you scheme and kill to get it. Does that sound like Genesis 4 at all to anybody? And yet what is true in Genesis 4 is true in all of us. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and you wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. Again, is the issue with the person next to me or is the issue with how I'm relating to God? It's how I'm relating to God. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. So where does comparison come from? Comparison doesn't come from out there. Comparison isn't just something that's wrong with the culture. Comparison is a tendency that's inside of us. 
we have a tendency to compare. We have a tendency to look around at what other people are doing on their treadmill, to look around at how other people are living their life, how our siblings are living their life, how our coworkers are spending their time, how our friends are investing their resources, uh, what they're doing with their home, what trips that they're going on. This is something that is core to who we are. And if we don't name it, we might start blaming other people for the problem that's actually in us, which is... I've got, a, I've got a comparison problem. Now, the question then is this. If I have a comparison problem, here's the second question. What is that problem doing to me? Like, what does comparison do to us? And I want to lay before you what I would kind of simply call the cycle of comparison. Here's, here's what happens in all of us, okay? The first piece is this, is that comparison breeds discontentment. Comparison breeds discontentment. You know, what I find funny is that um, we, <laughs> we have a treadmill that we tend to run on for our legs, right? But I also think that, that we have a treadmill for our thumbs. Anybody know what that treadmill is? It's our phone. Our phone. See, the University of Virginia did a study where they were looking at the impacts of aggression between men and women. It was quite interesting. And the question they were asking was, who is more generally aggressive? Is it men or is it women? So quick poll. I want you to actually give me your answer, okay? Who do you think is more generally aggressive? If you believe it's men, say men, one, two, three. If you think it's women, say women. Wow. I guess the University of Virginia didn't have to do that study. They could have just come here. What they found is that both men and women are actually about equivalent in their aggression, but they work that aggression out differently. That men tend to generally work their aggression out, not through words, but through activity. They'll swing on somebody. They're quick to get into a fight. But for women, this is the way that they do it. It's psychological. Y'all be playing some mind games. (laughs) And it can be exclusion. It can be words that are used. It could be backdoor, you know, compliments. It could be this kind of dynamic. And it's especially affecting teenage girls because that pattern of exclusion doesn't just happen when you're at school anymore. It happens on social media. Somebody doesn't like your post, and you begin to think, why didn't they like the post? Somebody sends a DM, and you think, "Well, well, what is that direct message about? You see a picture posted where all of the girlfriends are out, but you're not a part of it, and you feel kind of excluded and painful, hurt. Uh, the, the study applied this to social media, and they said this. If you wanted to ruin a generation of young men who have yet to figure out how to manage their aggression, give them a loaded gun and put it in their right pocket. But if you wanted to destroy a generation of young women, give them a cell phone and put it in their front pocket. Because the world that we're living in is marked by the treadmill of our thumbs. And it's no longer, right? It's no longer that I'm just competing against the person in my classroom. Now I'm competing against the whole world because I can see what the whole world is doing. I can see where the whole world is going. And that breeds discontentment in us. We're under a constant barrage telling us that we're not good enough, beautiful enough, smart enough, rich enough, talented enough, smart enough. I mean, they go on Disney cruises. And we go to Fun Spot. 
They renovated their house, baby. They have the black window frames that we now want. Remember when white was a thing and now black is a thing? It's like, I need black window frames. I need a pool. They've got the new kitchen. Look at the process that they're going through. Look at their home renovation. I want their house. They drive a new car. We drive used ones. She looks like she's 29. I look like my age. What's wrong with the world? (laughs) And the world that we're in is marked by comparison. A treadmill for our thumbs. And comparison leads to competition. And we end up running our race, not just against the treadmills that are in our gym. We end up running our race against the human race. And we find ourselves wondering why it is that we pick up speed. See, it's not just that comparison breeds discontentment, but here's the second thing. Comparison leads us to measure the wrong things. Comparison leads us to measure the wrong things. And this is human nature. First Samuel chapter 16, uh, Samuel is commissioned by God to go and find the next king. Uh, and he tells him to go to David's home. And uh, Saul at that point is the king. And if you read about Saul, King Saul, this man is tall, he's powerful, he's strong. He's the guy that I resent when I'm at the gym. Like, this is Saul. And so when Samuel goes to identify who the next king of God's people is going to be, Samuel goes and David's father expects that the one that's going to be selected of all of the sons is going to be the strongest, the handsomest, the smartest, the most powerful It's almost as if the the whole culture has a measuring stick for success, and it's all about what you can see on the outside. But listen to the words of Jesus. God speaking himself, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. He says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because that is the king that I have refused. For the Lord, look at this phrase, does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the, what's that word here? The Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. See, if we're not careful, living in a culture that is marked by comparison, being people that have a a, a tendency towards, just in our sin nature, to compare, we will find ourselves measuring others and ourselves on a standard that God is not interested in. We can determine success by external realities instead of internal ones. And what ends up happening is because we feel that pressure, the things that we buy now will demand that we maintain them. So we have to work more to make more, to spend more, to maintain more. Because the things that we value are things like status, how people perceive our family, our, how people perceive our success, how we think of our own success. And what ends up happening over time is that we begin to value things that God does not value at all. Which leads to the third process in the cycle. Comparison makes us feel like we need to catch up and keep up to be enough. I'll give you that sentence one more time. Comparison makes us feel like We need to catch up and keep up to be enough. So if I'm on my treadmill running a a four, and I see somebody else at a 7.2, what's that going to birth in me? A sense that I've got to catch up and keep up to be enough. I I think that there's a million ways to illustrate this, but um, this one is perhaps the most telling. Um, Water's 
fairly inexpensive. Can we agree with that? Right, like you can get water out of a water fountain, right? I mean, you can go to Publix, and Publix has a nice, you know, set of bottled water if you like that. If you're a true Floridian, you only go with Zephyr Hills, right? Because that's like Florida pride, right? Yeah, yeah. If you, if you like Dasani, I'm praying for you. Like, I don't understand. But water is fairly inexpensive, right? It's fairly inexpensive. But what I find interesting is like what we do with our water. Um, I find it really interesting, like, you know, there used to be a day where, um, do you guys remember this, the Tervis? you guys remember Tervises? That the Tervis was like the thing that you had to put your beverage of choice in, right? A Tervis was about $30, and so you'd, you'd put water in a $30 container. Uh, this one says, home is where the cat is, um, so uh, I'm willing to give this away if anybody wants it. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, we started with Tervis's, right? And then after the Tervis, after the Tervis, um, the next one um, was the Corksicle. Do you guys remember the Corksicle, right? The Corksicle was quality. If you had a Corksicle, that meant that you were, you were somebody, you know, like you had a, had a little bit to you, right? But the Corksicle was a sign that you were put together. And then all of a sudden, like we got really, really committed to, to the Yeti, right? The Yeti. The Yeti was like a, a you know, a t- like I, I'm tough, like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't drink water, I'm tough, I have a Yeti, right? You know that kind of idea, you know? So we, we, went, from the, we went from the Tervis to the Corksicle to the Yeti, and then it was the Hydro Flask, the Hydro Flask, right? You got to have a good Hydro Flask, right? And then uh, most recently, my daughter told me about this one. She's like, Dad, I have to have this uh, for Christmas. This is the Gatorade Pod. Are you guys familiar with this? Uh, so you just put water in it, and then you can drop a little Gatorade, Gatorade Pod, and it gives you, a, it tastes like real Gatorade, Right? You want to know how much this thing costs? I'm not going to tell you. All right? It was just so much. And then last but not least, we have to graduate from the Hydro Flask to the, the Stanley Cup. Oh, the Stanley Cup. The Stanley Cup. Uh, the cup that weighs 75 pounds. And here's what's crazy about the Stanley Cup, okay? Here's what just kind of blows my mind about the Stanley Cup. Um, uh, when we were trying to find these for Christmas, uh, we were able to buy them in store, thank God. But do you know what the aftermarket uh, rate on the Stanley Cup is? Certain colorways of the Stanley Cup were going for $109. And some of y'all bought them. <laughs> now, now, here's what's true, right? In all of these, right? In all of these cups, it's the same thing. Water that is cheap or, for many of us, not costing anything. But I'm looking at probably $300 worth of containers for cups over the last couple of years. Because somewhere, someone had a new version of the cup. And we had to get the new version. And if you're like in your mind right now, crossing your arms and you're like, that's crazy. Who would ever do that? Do we want to talk about your golf clubs? Do we want to talk about your target runs? It got real quiet there, didn't it? (laughs) Because there's something inside of us that says, I have got to do whatever it takes to catch up and keep up to be enough. Some economists and sociologi- sociologists have, to, um, have coined this term, lifestyle inflation. 
the reality um, that one study just researched and showed, uh, especially uh, millennials, but this is true across any generation, that, that, that those of us that, that are in a season or in a place, if your household income is, is, is in a place where it's above the national average, that the more money you make doesn't mean that you save more or put more away or invest more in retirement. You just change your lifestyle. You, you graduate from the Tervis to the Stanley. And what ends up happening is we look wealthy but aren't wealthy. You know there's a difference between looking rich and being wealthy, right? Uh, recent research showed that 61% of wealthy people, meaning the top 2% uh, of those income earners in America, that 61% of wealthy people drive Toyotas, Hondas, and Fords. Everyday cars. And listen, if you like nice things, I like nice things. And if you can afford those nice things, that's great. Enjoy what God has given you. But we also live in a world and in a culture where even followers of Jesus give less than 2% of their total income away to generous endeavors over the course of a year. It's because we are so busy trying to hurry up and keep up that we miss what God is actually measuring as success. We're measuring success by the world's standards instead of measuring success by God's standards. God is not interested in what vehicle I drive. God is not interested in what zip code I find myself in. God is interested in my heart. And is my heart more kind and more generous and more peaceful and more filled with gratitude? So what ends up happening is we borrow money we don't have to buy things we cannot afford to impress people that we don't really like. Because we're trying to keep up. And we get on the crazy treadmill. Because the more I buy to prove that I'm great, the more I have to work to maintain that lifestyle. And the more that I have to work, the busier I have to become. And the more dependent upon that promotion I am, as opposed to being grateful that if God is good, he will provide for what I need. So, so listen, we know that we live in a culture and in a community that values optic a whole lot more than it values heart. And it can be easy to fall into that reality. And perhaps you find yourself in a season of life where you're, you're kind of struggling to figure out how to make sense of this. We want to be able to help. Uh, last year, our church, um, for this year, uh, purchased something for you that is free. It's called Ramsey Plus. Uh, it is a resource that you can utilize on your own time and on your own pace to master your money instead of letting your money master you. It is free for you because we want to help you grow in this area so that you don't feel like you have to stay on this treadmill for the rest of your life. Uh, We're starting a class called Financial Peace University. If you're more like me and you need to be in a class where you're in person as opposed to trying to do it on your own, FPU starts next week. And it's a class that you can jump into right here. It's taught by folks at our church, an incredible class that you can be a part of. You can find all of that information by going to nonachurch.com slash events. And listen, it's not because we want anything from you. You just heard me talk about how God has provided for our church. Do you know how much fun it is to talk to you about your finances and your financial well-being, knowing that we don't need any of it? This is for you. This is for you to get off of this treadmill so that you can experience the goodness that God wants for you, the life that he wants for you. Because isn't this exhausting? Isn't it tiring having to run harder and push more and worry more about what's in the bank account and what's not and what they think and what do I think about myself? What if there's a way to live our life where what we're looking at is not what other people think about us to validate us, not comparing what's on our treadmill to what's on somebody else's treadmill, 
but instead running at a pace that God's designed for us so we can live a life of peace and joy and happiness and freedom. Louis Giglio has this great line. He says that comparison will push you into the red and it will rob you of rest. So let me just submit to you. Again, this might not be the whole reason why you keep on getting on the treadmill and running too fast, but could it be part of the reason that you find yourself trapped by comparison? I mean, gosh, it's in our human nature, isn't it? And then it's a part of our culture, isn't it? Goodness, we live in a community where this is normal, isn't it? And yet God's invitation to us is to become people that find freedom in him. Which leads to the last question, how do we break free from the comparison trap? How do we get off of this treadmill? How do we live a life of longevity and sustainability in walking with Jesus? Well, I want to read to you two texts from Paul, and then I want to give you a rhyme that you can write down that will help you remember how to get off this treadmill. Paul says this in Philippians 4. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. This is while he's in prison, by the way. He says, but I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned, look at this phrase, the secret of being content. Anybody like, I want to know that secret? He says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, whether I'm living in a house that is run down or living in a house that looks like Joanna Gaines vomited on it, like whatever house I'm in, I can find contentment, he says. How? I can do all this, look at these words, same with me, through him. One more time. I can do all these things through him who gives me strength. See that verse, Philippians 13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's not about how, much, how fast you can run a 40. It's not about what score you're going to get on your SAT. It's not about whether or not you're going to start on your team or not. It's not about that. It's about the ability to find contentment in a world that wants to, to, to hold you trapped by comparison. It's being able to be content regardless of your external circumstances. It's about having something internal that no one can take away from you, even in your external. So how do we live a life of contentment? The secret of contentment is living through Christ, through Christ. I want to give you three quick things. Here's the first one. Here's the rhyme, okay? How do I, how do I, when I'm on the treadmill and I'm running too fast and I need to slow down, and I need to stop being trapped by comparison, how do I do it? Here's the first one, right? Write it down. Start with grace. Start with grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Hear me. The most important thing about you is not something that you've done, but someone you are. The most important thing about you is not what you've accomplished. It's what Jesus has accomplished for you. The most important thing is not your zip code. The most important thing is where your residence is in eternity. And if you are the beloved child of God. No one can take that from you. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. Jesus, when he gets baptized, God declares from the heavens, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Before Jesus did anything, before he had a follower, before he had influence, before he went to the cross, before he had accomplished anything. Jesus had no public ministry when the heavenly father declares, this is my son whom I love. 
and with whom I am well pleased. I need you to hear this. If you never did a good thing again in your life, God loves you as you are because God is good. He loves you. So you don't work for grace. You will work from grace. Start with grace. When you find yourself running and rushing, start with grace. Here's the second one. Run your race. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 continues, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. I love this verse. What do you think about this? When God thought about you and his redemptive plan, he smiled. And he made you to have the skills, the heart, the ability, the ethnicity, the background, the city that you grew up in. Everything about you, God made you before the foundations of the earth. He saw a problem in the world that would need to be solved. And he designed you to solve that particular problem. To accomplish the exact things he made you for. In his glory and for others good. You are a masterpiece. That word workmanship means masterpiece. You are a masterpiece. And a masterpiece is not meant to be treated commonly or haphazardly. And a masterpiece is a masterpiece regardless of where it is. The Mona Lisa isn't valuable because it's in the Louvre. The Louvre is valuable because that's where the Mona Lisa is. And you are not valuable because of what zip code you live in, what, what letters at the end of your name, what neighborhood you call your own, what kind of car that you're driving, what kind of brands are on your shirt, what kind of water mug you choose to walk around with. You are not valuable because of those things. You are valuable because God says you are valuable and he made you for a purpose and a plan. And when he dreamt of anyone in the world that could do the thing that needs to be done, he thought of you. So start with grace. Run your race. And lastly, enjoy the pace. I'm a rapper. Start with grace. Run your race. And enjoy the pace. All of these good works, Ephesians chapter 2, 10, verse B. That we should, what's that word on the screen? Say it with me. That we should walk. One more time. That we should walk. That we should Walk in them. Everything God designed you for is in his time and at his speed. And the goal isn't to finish first. The goal is to finish well. So when you find yourself running this race, let me leave you with four questions. These are your next steps for today. Ask yourself these questions. When you find yourself inevitably starting to bump up the speed to try and keep up with everyone else, because it's going to happen, how do we find ourselves how do we give ourselves capacity to slow down? Here's some questions. Ask yourself this question. Why am I running so hard? What am I trying to prove? Where am I trying to keep up? And what would God say to me? And if you're wondering what God would say to you, he would say this. You are my son. <laughs> you are my daughter whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. With that in mind, would you stand as we pray? As your eyes are closed, I want to invite you to simply respond to this question. If this is you, I'm going to invite you to open your hands so that I can pray for you. If you would say, I have been running on the treadmill at too fast a pace, 
because there are places in my life where I've been focusing on how others are running their race. If you know that the invitation to you is to start with grace, to run your race and enjoy the pace, would you just open your hands like this and say, yes, God, I want to live that life. I want that life. Let me pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that the banner over our lives is not marked by our achievement or accomplishments or what we've done. But the banner over our life is that you have called us your own, that you love us, that you're for us, that you're with us, not against us, that you care deeply for us, that God, you have a way of working all things together for the good of those that love you and for your glory. So God, we live in a culture that wants to speed us up and hurry us up, to tell us we gotta keep up and catch up, to be enough. But Father, we declare today in the name of Jesus that we are enough because of what Christ has done on the cross for us. That any yearning or earning has been replaced by grace and forgiveness. And that we don't have to run hard. We don't have to run fast because we get to walk with you, the author and the perfecter and the finisher of our faith. So God, help us not to be focused on somebody else's race, but help us fix our eyes on you. And in your gaze, find the kindness and the compassion and the love of a father who calls us his beloved. Help us pause to believe that. These are the things we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody in this place says, amen.